Hello and welcome to the Numlock Podcast. I am Walt Hickey. Uh, my guest this week is Megan Garber. Megan is a writer at The Atlantic, and uh, the magazine has compiled a number of her essays into a new book. It is called On Misdirection, Magic, Mayhem, American Politics. It's a really great read. It's an exploration into all the different ways that American political actors have kind of hijacked some of the techniques of entertainment and uh, used them towards their own ends. And so uh, today we talked about amusing ourselves to death. We talked about what happens to a country when politics becomes entertainment. And uh, and we talked about Dwight Schrute uh, from The Office. So the book, as well as several other new compilations of essays from The Atlantic, are available wherever you can find books. And uh, Megan can be found at The Atlantic. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Megan Garber, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So you have a new book. It's it's a collection of a lot of your essays at The Atlantic. It's called On Misdirection. I guess, you know, what, what kind of prompted you to, to figure out this beat and kind of tease out uh, that you were covering misdirection over the past couple of years? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, a lot of the, the things that have really interested me about um, politics um, and political discourse, let's say, um, <laughs> over the past uh, few years is the ways that um, we are trained to see each other and then also to not see each other. It seems like so many things, um, you know, so many of the big political stories, um, you know, particularly at the beginning of the presidency of Donald Trump and then and then up till now, um, so much has come down to are we seeing what we should be seeing or are we, in fact, looking away from what we should be seeing? Um, so so. Ideas about vision is actually one of the um, one of the main sort of drivers of all of these essays, which are very different other than that. But um, I just kept noticing as I was, you know, I'm a political junkie. I really, you know, I, I, I love to follow politics and all of that. But I kept feeling for myself just as a news consumer. Um, is this really the most important thing right now? You know, all these kind of shiny distractions kind of daily outrages that come and go. And I know I myself as a news consumer often feel very kind of addled almost and, you know, just in a constant state of distraction. And so these essays really do try to figure out what happens to that form of distraction kind of on a mass scale. You know, if I'm if I'm not the only one feeling this, but if a lot of people are feeling this, what are the consequences of that? Yeah, and I loved how also you kept it in some of the more conventional forms of media as well, too. I know that a lot of our conversation about distraction has been related to like social media and algorithms and kind of like blamed on on Silicon Valley ghosts that are that are destroying our brains. But like a lot of what you talk about is just super day to day. Like it's 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 the way people talk about other people, whether it's on television or radio or things like that. Uh, I, I guess uh, do you want to kind of expand on how it's not just necessarily what, what we're doing online? Sure. Yes. So the first essay actually um, is a look back at the scholar Neil Postman, who is one of my favorite um, thinkers, critics, etc. He wrote um, a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death in 1985 that was looking at the impact of television, essentially, on American culture. And um, as you might guess from the title, <laughs> making an <laughs> argument that the entertainment, um, you know, has kind of slipped the bonds of mere fun and, and mere escapism and distraction and is actually kind of, you 
you know, come into our lives and kind of come to infiltrate lives in a lot of ways. And so that's uh, looking at him sort of in retrospect um, is the first essay in the collection. And um, we chose that specifically because I, I think one of the other arguments kind of underlining um, a lot that's in the book is that entertainment, um, you know, as much as I love it, and I, you know, <laughs> I, yeah. I am an inveterate lover of entertainment of all kinds, um, but it can, I think, also become fairly pernicious when it becomes our standard of judging things, you know, in the political realm. So one example um, that's that's in another essay in there is um, the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Um, the talking points, it seemed to me, among Trump's allies. Um, had nothing to do with the facts at hand. You know, this was a legal proceeding, you know, conducted by lawyers, by, you know, meta lawyers, in fact, in Congress. Um, and yet the arguments were nothing to do with the facts, but uh, this is boring. That was essentially what it came down to, you know, Ugh, snooze, Ugh, no one's watching this, all that kind of stuff. When again, these were, this was an impeachment trial of a president. There were, you know, facts at play, and yet the talking points completely elided that. And um, what struck me as well, though, was it was not just partisan talking points. Um, one news organization um, had an, an, an entire op-ed about the impeachment trial, um, sort of complaining that it lacked pizzazz. Yeah. Uh, pizzazz was literally the word that was used. And, you know, so I think there's this way that, um, you know, if we're not careful, the the sort of logic of entertainment itself, you know, this idea that everything has to be fun, that boring is, you know, its own kind of factual argument. Um, that's what can happen. Um, that was what Neil Postman was talking about. And, and that, I think, is what's happening right now, too, where just, you know, entertainment becomes kind of the only thing that matters at the end of the day. And, and that can become, I think, pretty quickly dangerous and, and bad for us as a culture. Yeah, that was a really remarkable argument in the book. Again, like, I I'm a huge fan of pop culture. I like being entertained, but it just <laughs> felt weird how so much of the language and, and the and the desire of pop culture was being kind of uh, adapted and weaved into politics. You know, you you know, you mentioned obviously um, Trump and rallies and and the impeachment, but like you know, you had you had an example in there about people to judge after the Iowa caucus that I thought was really potent. Where it's just like the question isn't like did we win? It's like aren't we having so much fun? Like yeah, no, exactly right. And and the Iowa caucus is is famous and infamous for yeah. not having an immediate result. Things got <laughs> you know very quickly um, things things went awry in a, in a quite extreme manner there. And exactly. Exactly what you said. Pete Buttigieg um, put out a, um, a a a talk saying, um, you know, we have we have shocked the nation. You know, kind of claiming <laughs> victory, even though no such victory had been claimed. And yes, just like you said, this this idea that shock is even part of the conversation. That shock is, you know, a value on its own. Um, I think just speaks to, you know, um, the way that that fun and, you know, kind of high emotional um, stakes of everything, um, you know, are kind of are kind of infiltrating, I think, our, our rhetoric and, and logic as a culture. And I think also just, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, overheated rhetoric and, you know, just everything is heated and everything is ratcheting up at all times. And I think one of the um, extensions of the ratcheting is that we as as news consumers and as citizens really um, just become accustomed to ever more levels of drama of you know outrage of everything and and we're sort of losing the ability I think to have kind of a, a moderate anything yeah. <laughs> in our conversations everything is just bigger dramatic jazz hands 
Yeah. And, and so, you know, we may as well kind of get to, to some of the heart of this. You know, there's a, obviously a guy who comes up a couple times in your book mm. who is very kind of good at this um, bit of a controversial figure, but you just kind of keep on coming back to him, I think, for reasons that are, that are kind of clear. What, uh, what draws you to Dwight Schrute? <laughs> uh, that was amazing. Um, <laughs> I do. So I am. So, so I will say um, during um, uh, the early days of the pandemic, um, I've, I've always been a fan of the show, The Office, and I kind of went back to it um, as kind of a comfort watch, a soothing watch, you know, in these really, you know, kind of awful days. And um, so I was newly familiar with The Office. And um, so for for anyone who might not be familiar, uh, (laughs) The Office is a U.S. sitcom, um, but it focuses on, you know, a a very sort of, uh, you know, a a small office in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And there is a a boss, Michael Scott, who is, you know, kind of an oaf in a lot of ways. And then one of the other characters in the show is, yes, Dwight Schrute, who I I've always been fascinated by because he's this kind of amazing contradiction, this kind of walking category error. Um, He, you know, is a beet farmer, but he has kind of these authoritarian tendencies. He's very, you know, he's, he's just, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of how to describe Dwight, but anyway, he's just, you know, a lot of things at once. But I think one of the things that's so interesting about him is that he is this person who um, very much thinks that he knows better than everyone else what the rules are, that he can decide the rules for himself and then importantly inflict them on other people. And so Dwight thinks he is basically um, the ultimate agent of law enforcement, you know, literally and otherwise in the office. And in fact, again and again, is a physical danger to his colleagues. <laughs> um, so just that tension in Dwight um, felt very resonant to me, um, you know, as you say, um, for other <laughs> for other political figures and, and power players as well. So so I wanted to to sort of look at Dwight as almost a um, a character and a trope um, who conveys so much about um, you know, are the people in political power often who who sort of make up their own rules and then enforce them and inflict them on everyone else. And, and you know, this idea of, you know, we're doing it because I said so. And that's the only explanation you're going to get. And these kind of, you know, lies that just, you know, everyone just kind of lies without any real um, you know, any real sense of of backlash or anything. And, and a lot of that to me seemed to be conveyed in Dwight. Yeah, and there's like an appeal to him, and you can understand like in a democracy where appeal is a key component of accessing power, that despite the obvious you know flaws in in his leadership capabilities for a large duration, um, you can see how a guy like that just might kind of appeal to a large group of people. And, and you know, I guess we can we can now kind of broaden it out a bit. Like like, how do you think that kind of applies to American society as a whole? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, definitely, because I think there is something about, you know, especially in a time where, you know, a lot of, um, you know, the supporters of, of the fellow we've been talking about, um, you know, I think, um, you know, poll after poll suggests that they feel a sense of encroachment. They feel like they're, you know, they they used to sort of you know, be sort of, you know, de facto at the top of American society and feel like now they are being pushed down a bit, you know, and um, I think there's a lot of indignation there and a lot of, um, you know, wanting to feel a little bit, you know, reassured that no, you still do have power, you still do, you know, you can still say for everyone else, like you have throughout history. And I think there's something about um, Dwight, definitely that that sort of, 
um, you know, conveys that idea. And I think also, you know, Donald Trump um, very famously and infamously promised, you know, I alone can fix it, um, you know, yeah. with the it being fill in the blank. And I think there's something, A, um, in that message, there's something very um, reassuring to people who feel very sort of caught in a tumult and who feel very kind of unsettled and everything, you know, so much is in flux right now. And I think, you know, to just have that sort of authoritarian presence who can just say, trust me, I've got this, I can make the world make sense again. Um, you know, I think there's something very appealing, um, you know, just about that message, um, you know, and then of course, there's a question of how true that is, how, um, <laughs> you know, politically problematic that is, etc. But in terms of rhetoric, I think that's very powerful. And I think also there's sort of the, the, the adjunct to that message, which is, um, you know, if Donald Trump can say, what's what, if he can, you know, look at an orange and say it's an apple, and just by force of will have the orange in some sense become an apple. I think there's also, um, you know, kind of a silent message to people that, you know, they might have that same kind of agency, like they can still be the ones who decide. Um, and I think that there's a very powerful message in that. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, you know, you had a line towards the end of, of that essay, I think, that was just like kind of resolving Dwight's arc. And this was you wrote this, I think, in, in October 2020, which was a fascinating time for a lot of people. Mm. And you basically like wrote basically that, that, that like his arc as an agent of chaos is simply not sustainable. And so he, he even towards the end of it kind of domesticates a little bit just because that's, you know, kind of what folks want. I guess, how do you kind yeah. of see that potentially applying beyond strictly the, the, tele the American television program, The Office? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the things that's so interesting to me about sort of the office itself is, is that you could sort of, yeah, you could see, or, or at least when I was rewatching it, um, what really struck me were sort of, you know, um, as, as a writer, um, not a writer of sitcoms, but a writer in general, um, you know, I could sort of, I think, see the, the type of arc that they were trying to give different characters. And just like you said, yeah, Dwight, after a while, you know, a character like that, can't simply stay an, a an agent of chaos. Like there has to be some kind of evolution and some kind of, yeah, art to the character or else it just gets too repetitive, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, um, you know, A, something about the arcs, um, I think is very revealing because I think, you know, to the Neil Postman point, um, you know, in the very broad sense, like, Americans, I think, are being conditioned to understand the world in roughly the same way as a sitcom understands the world, which is, you know, a character like Dwight needs the needs the arc, needs the evolution, needs a bit of catharsis also at the end. Um, and I think a lot of us are now coming to see the world itself in those terms, where if something we expect our political stories, we expect our, you know, real stories of everyday life to also have some tidy conclusions, to also kind of, you know, mimic the the flow of, of a TV show and a sitcom. And so, um, you know, so that's one thing I would say that there's, there is this kind of logic of sitcom built into things. And I think that's what can make you know, so many of the problems we have, which are so big and intractable, um, you know, climate change would be one I would point to, you know, and that really resists kind of, you know, a, a Schrudian narrative yeah. arc, you know, and so I think it makes it sometimes hard for us um, to talk about. Um, but I would also say that the, the you know, office's writers, I think, recognized how deeply 
you know, viewers, and I would also then say, you know, citizens and people and news consumers, um, how, how desperately we crave a kind of catharsis at the end, you know, in whatever form that might look like. But I think, you know, catharsis is a very important um, idea, both in <laughs> sitcom writing and in the broader, the broader world. Yeah, you know, that's a really, I like that idea, because I did want to talk to you a little bit about kind of the arc of your book, which was really, really great. Again, it's a collection of essays, and, and, and you know, I imagine that the order in which you present them, there was a lot of thought that went into that. Um, you kick it off very much kind of talking about, like, irony and satire and how they're having a good moment. You talk a little bit about the science march. I'll let you take it from there a little bit. But, like, yeah. in the end, you also kind of finish on, on you know the idea that if you you wrote like if you brand yourself an entertainer and not a journalist you can spread falsehoods in the name of fun and i think mm, that there's like yeah. you know you start off in a place where you know people are having fun for for you know one might think like uh, like deliberate and, and like you know some positive facing means and then in the end like th that can get co-opted in a manner do you want to maybe kind of talk about some of of, of that Sure. And thank you. That's such a good observation. Um, yes, totally. So so the book begins um, um, in this essay about Neil Postman, looking at um, the March for Science, um, um, you know, which was um, it was sort of uh, put on in the same um, the same general time that um, the Women's March was happening, you know, that that people were trying to find ways to protest against um you know, against the new the new presidency, and so this was um, this was a march that was you know very self consciously designed to sort of support science, facts, etc. Um, and I did not attend myself, but I was looking through Instagram, um, you know, afterwards and sort of looking at all the you know just all the photos, and that's such that's the way of the modern march, right? Is to sort of like have have your march, in, which you know happens in person, you know, translate to Instagram, translate to memes, etc. And you kind of the the one of the um, uh, one of the things that you're supposed to do really as a good sort of um, attender of these marches is to come up with a costume that will go viral perhaps you yeah. know and and I was just thinking about that and I you know and 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 I was delighted by I mean there were some really good jokes um, uh, you know it was it they were great they were great costumes great signs all that stuff but I just kept thinking you know what now, you know, yeah. um, after this March, you know, is this, speaking of catharsis, is this enough catharsis for people? Is this going to feel like, okay, well, we, we did this. So what else can we do? That's enough. You know, we've had our catharsis, we've made our point, you know, et cetera. And I, and I don't mean to suggest that that was sort of the, you know, that, that everyone involved, you know, you know, just stopped at the March. But I, I do think that sometimes, um, you know, when this becomes our mode of sort of political expression, there is a little bit of a, okay, but how are we going to actually, you know, defend science in real life? How are we going to defend women's rights in, in real life? And, and yeah. I worry sometimes that just the, the fun itself and that the act of, you know, togetherness and all of that can sort of be its own catharsis and then not actually translate to, to additional action in the real world. It's like, that's a real good point. And I do want to stay here because I, I know that we're on a roll, but it is interesting because again, like the science march did, you, it was a very fun vibe. Everybody printed right. their favorite XKCD. It was yep. a good time. But like, <laughs> and then if you were to compare that as you just did to the women's march, which was not distinctly as much of a good time, the one of those movements had a little bit more staying power, one might say. Yeah. No, that's totally right. That's totally right. And I think, you know, and, and I don't, I, I want to also be clear that I think, you know, 
the 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 fun elements of things um you know i mean that can be great like fun is kind of throughout american history um you know fun has been an important um, means of political expression um i think people sometimes forget um the book common sense you know the thomas paine tract that that you know in on some level really did help to foment the revolution um not only was it passionately argued and you know this kind of very compelling piece of rhetoric it was also just really funny it was it was a work of entertainment. People would read it aloud to each other around the fire. And, you know, it, it had that level of of making politics fun. And I think that that is a really important, actually, element of politics to make people feel engaged, you know. But that then I think for me, the question is, you know, to what extent does the fun encourage us? To what extent does it activate us? To what extent does it sort of bring us together in community? Or to what extent does it sort of alienate us from the reality of politics and, and sort of condition us to see, again, everything is entertainment, in which case the fun isn't the means, but the fun is the end, essentially. Yeah. And, and like, you know, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about how you kind of close the book? I know you talk a little bit about Tucker, but you also talk a little bit about basically how, you know, everybody's having fun now. It's not just a technique used by those out of power to somewhat mock and, and undermine those in. It's, it's also used to kind of enforce it a little bit, too. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I mean, speaking of Tucker Carlson, I mean, he, you know, famously in a legal case, his lawyer argued on his behalf that he is not a journalist, he is an entertainer, and therefore can say anything he wants to say. And that argument won, that argument yeah. held sway. And so I think, you know, again and again, um, you know, rhetoric that I would see as propaganda, that, you know, really is designed, I think, to 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 make certain Americans think that other Americans are less American and in some sense, less human. That's, that's a big part of the rhetoric, I think, um, you know, going on in that show, you know, it comes across, it is presented as entertainment. It's presented as, ah, oh, we're just asking questions like, oh, it's not yeah. that big of a deal. And, you know, there's a real minimization of, of rhetoric that I find to be very dangerous and, and frankly, scary. Um, you know, and, and we just, we see that idea, I think again and again, I think one of the, the sort of, um, subsidiary ideas that I tried to consider in these essays is, you know, sort of what does propaganda actually look like? Because yeah. I think, you know, at least for me, when, when I hear that word, I think of, you know, kind of Soviet billboards and, you know, I, I think of the mid century and, you know, like, like very sort of like, you know, overt direct, you should believe this. And, you know, and I think now, um, propaganda has taken on this much more insidious form where, you know, it's the same types of messages. It's the same, you know, attempt to sort of, you know, win hearts and minds over to a cause, whatever the cause may be. But the propaganda itself is not overt. Instead, it is, you know, very, um, you know, kind of buried in, you know, just messages that look like fun, you know, that look like just entertainment. And I think that, um, that is a really scary development because it means the propaganda can have even more power than it might otherwise to to affect the way people see the world. Yeah, um, I, again, like I really enjoy your work. I'm so happy that it's been kind of compiled into this. I'm missing, uh, excuse me, on <laughs> misdirection. Um, and, but like, I don't know. Like, I, I will say, like again, just kind of one. Like, I have recently and like that for a long for a little bit of a while i have had increasingly complicated feelings towards the daily show with john stewart like i was mm. a, i was a teenager during the bush administration and, yeah. and that was like very much i think something that was i think kind of formative for me but like i think it's kind of impossible to like 
look at what came after and what that kind of flowed into, you know, even it Tucker directly somewhat by the, that somewhat faithful crossfire interview. I, I think yeah. it's kind of impossible to look back at the past, like, you know, 15 years and, and not kind of see the fingerprints of that on a lot of different political movements that are not necessarily uh, what it was originally going for. Yeah, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. And I would say too, I mean, I think, um, you know, the daily show in my mind is a little bit of, of a piece of a, kind of broader collapse almost. Yeah. Um, you know, The Daily Show, I think, is very much a response um, to the rise of just reality TV in general. I would argue that, you know, um, the whole point of that genre is to sort of collapse the real and the fake into one thing and be entirely unclear about where the reality ends and the, the fiction begins. And I think that The Daily Show, I mean, is very much an extension of that. Um, you know, around the same time, you've had, um, you know, just so many other kind of um, you know, cultural works in that space where it's, you know, the whole point is just to sort of poke fun at the idea that you can even distinguish between fact and fiction. And, you know, that in a way, I mean, I, to be clear, like that is not propaganda on its own, but um, I would also say that, you know, this idea that fact and fiction on some level can't be extricated from each other, like that is a very foundational um, argument of, of any propaganda. So I think that, yeah. yes, I think we're, we're, we're sort of in starting, I would argue, um, you know, in the, in the nineties with reality TV, yeah. um, you know, to some extent with social media as well, where, you know, there's, you know, are the people on social media, are they people at all? Or are they characters in a show? It can be very hard to tell. Um, and so I think we, we've sort of been on this path since the 90s um, and, you know, at least the 90s, uh, possibly before as well, but where just everything kind of blurs together and the fact looks like fiction, the serious stuff looks like entertainment, the entertainment looks like serious stuff and everything is just kind of in this blurry, chaotic mess. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And like, I think that like, there's just, it, it just kind of keeps them coming up. Like, again, you might, you mentioned the science March, but like, you know, I went to the rally restore to rally to restore sanity when I was 20 and mm. like the vibes mm. and the fun vibes of that. And the like, we're all in this together. And we all the thing like that was the thing in DC from January 5th to 7th, 2021. Like, you know, yeah. you, you can definitely kind of see the same, um, you know, it, 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 it's just kind of been remarkable. And I love in your book, just kind of how you went through all the kind of different ways that this is manifesting. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, that's, we, we were going, I'm um, speaking of the order, we were going for that kind of arc. So I really, I appreciate that that was, that was really clear. Because yeah, it, it, it really does feel like this, um, one of those sort of paths that you can kind of see in retrospect, you know, yeah. and at the time, it's hard to sort of know what's exactly happening. But now, even just, you know, 10 years later, five years later, um, things become, I think, much more clear. Um, and then, too, at the end of the book, we, we finished out that order with, um, um, uh, well, one of the one of the last, I should say. Um, but we one of the essays in there, the final essays is, um, you know, about sort of how endings themselves, you know, yes. the sense of, you know, things will come to a satisfying conclusion that that alone, that logic, which is so much you know, a product, I think, of, of movies and TV shows and all of that, um, how that logic alone can be really um, uh, pernicious for people because, you know, most things will not have an ending. <laughs> most things are fluid. News stories are fluid. They will, you know, yes, there are some beginnings and some endings, but, you know, that that's not... That, that's usually they're going to defy that in some kind of way. And I think, though, as Americans, we are so conditioned to expect the catharsis, expect either, expect either the, the happy ending or the dramatic one. And, and, um, and I think, yes, just, just the sort of arc of the past 
you know, decades, I think really shows that how connected everything is and how, how hard it is to sort of distinguish, you know, the beginning of one thing and the end of the other. Yeah, I gotta say, I, I almost wonder if it's systemic in the states, because like, the the thing that I envy the most, I think, about parliamentary systems is that mm. inevitably the per, the leader and the protagonist will leave in shame like they will lose eventually <laughs> and you will have a conclusion yeah. to the end of the winston yeah. churchill arch of, of of the united kingdom and we don't have that like barack obama's still around donald trump's oh. still around like they don't just like like and i just i think that i wonder how much that's systemic no that's such a good point and i would say i mean you know this is i i will i will admit this is a little bit of um, you know extreme of me but i actually do sure. think it's true i mean you you look in pop culture right now and you know what do we have but sequel after sequel after sequel i think the 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 highest grossing movies um of 2022 were all sequels i believe yeah. um you know uh, so we have this idea, I think, of kind of the end of endings, essentially. And it's not just in politics. It's sort of everywhere where, you know, so on the one hand, we crave the endings and expect the endings. But on the other hand, we live in a culture where nothing necessarily ends. You know, the, the sitcom, however many years later, will get its almost inevitable reboot. And, you know, Thanos will, will clap his hands and, you know, that will all be undone. I won't say anything else for anyone who hasn't seen. But, um, you know, there, there is this sense, I think, that like even the ending is not necessarily an ending. And there can be, you know, resurrections and, and all yeah. of that stuff. And like you said, you know, the presidency never ends. It just sort of takes its final form. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think that maybe that's going to get people, you know, a little bit more comfortable living in that ambiguity of, of, of you know, things never necessarily ending? <laughs> It might. No, you're, that's a very good point. It, it very much might. But then I also think that, um, you know, that, that, that desire for the ending is just so baked into, to our culture. I think that, I think it will be more of a, of a tension than, than a kind of slow, um, <laughs> like, you know, becoming more comfortable with, with the flux. <laughs> All right. Well, you have teed this up perfectly because I would like to end this podcast. Megan, Ooh, um, <laughs> thank you so much Fine. for coming on. This was uh, <laughs> such you. a great conversation. Why don't you tell folks where they can find the book, a little bit about it, and, and, and where folks can find you? Oh, sure. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, so the book is called On Misdirection. Um, it's uh, Magic, Mayhem, American Politics is the subheading. Um, and it's really just a look at, um, yeah, ways of seeing in politics and, and the ways that we have of not seeing in politics that, you know, how we look at each other and then fail to look at each other um, how, you know, our vision is often uh, misdirected by the, the magicians um, in, in power in politics. And you can buy the book, as far as I know, wherever books are sold. Um, I know I have a, a, a big preference for IndieBound. I love that, that, that site, but um, everywhere books are sold. Yeah. Great. And I know some of your colleagues are coming out with, with other ones of these two, like uh, aggregations of these essays uh, from the Atlantic, right? right? Oh, yes. Ooh, if I could share those, please, that would be great too. We have um, Lenica Cruz, my colleague writing on BTS. She is, I would say, one of the foremost experts on BTS and fandom. Um, And it's, it's a lovely book. It's really, it actually made me very emotional reading it. Yeah. Past and future guest of this, uh, this particular newsletter. Oh, you're going to have so much fun. That's great. Um, And then the other, other one is is my friend and colleague Sophie Gilbert writing on womanhood and her experiences with womanhood, sort of a feminist um, examination of of pop culture and 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 so much else. And and that too is beautifully written. Um, it's it's wonderful. So both of those books are excellent, excellent, excellent. All right. Well, hey, Megan, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. This is so nice to talk. Uh, we'll see if we can reboot it next year or something. Okay. For, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> inevitably. Yes. <laughs> 
Thanks again to Megan for coming on. You should check out the book on this direction. Uh, I've been Walt Hickey. Thanks to GAT Fails for the use of our theme song. And uh, thank you for listening. Don't hesitate to rate, review, and subscribe. Take it easy. Bye.